Romans 6 and verse 23, we're turning to Romans 6 and the 23rd, that's the final verse in the chapter, and it's really the second half of it that in particular I am going to look at this evening with you. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And with God's Word open before us, we'll bow in a further word of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, again we come into Thy presence. We do thank Thee for the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. We praise Thee for the wonderful atonement that was made at Calvary. And we thank Thee, Lord, for the grace of God that brings knowledge of it to our hearts because we are wandering blindly through life being pretty much self-contained, self-sufficient, self-righteous. And like so many others, all on the road to God's judgment and hell, we imagine that we're going to be good enough, that we will somehow pass the tests of God. But Lord, we come to Thy Word then, and the Word enlightens our hearts, it illuminates our minds, it sets the standard, it shows us what God demands, and He demands perfection from us, none of which uh, will be given by any single one of us. We cannot reach that mighty standard. But we thank Thee, we know one who has, and we praise Thee for the perfect God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, who could offer as He did on Calvary the one sacrifice that was necessary to satisfy God's justice and be commensurate with God's truth. We praise Thee that we can look to that cross and we can say today that Calvary covers it all. My past with its guilt and shame, all of my sin and despair, Jesus took on Him there, and Calvary covers it all. We thank Thee. It's not a partial salvation. It wasn't a work that atoned for some of our sins, but it atoned for all of the sins of all of the people for whom Thou didst die to redeem. And so we thank Thee for that crimson current of the great Redeemer's blood, and we pray that those who haven't yet basked in it bathed in it, washed and be clean because of it, that they will do so this very night. Come and answer our prayer, pour out thy Spirit upon thy word again, and give us hearing ears, understanding hearts, as we have come to this eternal truth. We pray in Jesus' name, and for his glory alone. Amen. Cork, down in the very southern part of Ireland. I've been there, both visiting and also filling in for Mr. Colin Wack, Maxwell and his wife Olive, and they, as you know, faithfully conducted missionary and church activity there in the city of Cork for more than 20 years. And the 19th century hymn writer, George Wade Robinson, was there as well. He was born there in 1838, and he grew up in the Irish city of Cork. He went for his education to Trinity College in Dublin, later moved over to New College in London, 
became a pastor, stroke poet in Ireland and England. So he was using his literary talents in Dublin and in Dudley and in Brighton, and then finally where he died in the city of Southampton. Along the way, he entered the congregational ministry. He became a co-pastor initially, sharing the pulpit of York Street Chapel in Dublin with Mr. Urwick. Then he was pastor over in Dudley at St. John's Wood, and he ended up also in Union Street in the city of Brighton. Very interested the other day to meet some who had just come back from doing evangelistic work in Brighton. And we know the kind of reputation that Brighton has, enough said, but they said, they met a guy in the street who was giving out tracts, and he said to them at the end of it, did you not think there were any Christians in the city of Brighton? And he said, oh yes, I was quite confident there would be some. He said there are actually thriving gospel churches who were not just simply in their own little holy huddles, meeting in a back street somewhere, not sharing the good news. They are out on the streets in Brighton, where Satan's seat is, and they are preaching the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. George Wade Robinson, in addition to writing some sonnets, other poems, he published a number of sermons in a book called The Philosophy of the Atonement and Other Sermons. And then it said that he became ill and he resigned from his post as a pastor. Little is known as to what caused the illness or indeed his death. I don't know what standard his poems were. I've never come across any of his sermons. But what I have done is appreciate one of the hymns that came from his pen, and he wrote it one year before he died. That death came about at a very young age of 39. The hymn that he wrote was, Loved with everlasting love. I am his, and he is mine. And as you read through the words of the hymn, they're communicating a very salient fact. Here was a man who knew the Lord, who knew where he was going after he died. And in the opening verse, he rejoices in the full and the perfect peace that he had received from Christ alone. Now, I especially appreciate the words of the second verse, because there he talks about, as a believer, you can see things that you never were able to see when you were in your unconverted condition. That union with Jesus Christ, it anoints our eyes with spiritual eye salve, and even the beauty of creation is seen in a way that it wasn't before. What a fantastic picture Robinson shares with us in the third verse. With the child of God, he shows him as being sheltered in everlasting arms of his father. And no doubt there are wild alarms, that's what he calls them, swirling all around him. But knowing I am held safely in the arms of my father gives him that full and perfect peace that he began as him by talking about. Then when we drop down into the final fourth verse of the hymn, it reminds us when Paul was soaring up on that big flight of spiritual zeal and knowledge in Romans chapter 8. Some have described Romans 8 as St. Paul's Song of Songs, comparing it to Song of Solomon. And in verse 38 and 39, Paul is writing, For I am persuaded that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it sounds very much as if Paul is saying there that I am now united to Christ and that link will never be broken through time and also through eternity. And that's exactly the truth that George Robinson focused on in that final verse of his hymn. And when we think that the author of the hymn was at that point just a year away from death, but he's realizing and relishing the fact that nothing can ever separate me from the love of God. What a joy. And he expresses it in these words, I am his and he is mine. And he and I will never be parted. Many people are unable to see that the salvation Jesus gives is an eternal salvation. I must admit, I have some sympathy with them. I know how it feels. I was once in that position myself, brought up in free Methodism way back in the day. But praise God, I was delivered from that idea that you could be saved one day, but unsaved the next. And should you die, then you would be lost. Due to the fact, however, that so many are still in the sly of the spawned on this very issue, I've decided it might be profitable today to discuss the proposition that whom the Lord saves, he saves forever. That his salvation is, as described, it is eternal. As our text in Romans 6 and 23 puts it, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, 30 times over in the New Testament, you'll read the words eternal life or life eternal. We have it as noted in our text, and we have it right through to 1 John 5 and 13, where John is summarizing all that he has written in the previous four chapters, including chapter 5, of course, and he says, I've written this that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and this life is in his Son. In other words, once truly in grace, then always in grace. How can we back up and give support for that statement? Well, we're thinking, first of all, of the essence of eternal life the essence of eternal life, what it is. And the point that I'm making right away is salvation is all of grace. Now, if salvation is all of grace, and the Bible repeatedly teaches that, then if it is all of grace, it must be the case that God does it all. A to Z, God is there all the way through. He is initiate. He is completing. He is bringing in the great consummation of our salvation from beginning to end. Grace is the biggest word in any language. In fact, you could say it is an immeasurable word. You just can't plot the dimensions of this term. It's as deep as hell because it saves us from it. It's as high as heaven because grace, God's grace, is what gets us there. 
Didn't Newton say, His grace has kept me safe thus far, and His grace, what will it do? It will take me home. Grace is as wide as a measure of the east from the west, and it is as long as eternity. That's why I'm saying grace is one of those immeasurable words. Grace means that all the qualities of deity, the Godhead involved here in His love, in His mercy, in His justice, in His truth, in His righteousness, in His faithfulness, in His power, in His eternity, everything to do with God, all of those perfections, they cooperate in the salvation of us poor lost sinners. You'll have heard grace defined by the acronym. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And right through the journey, the sinner does nothing substantial at all. God does everything. That's why Paul is able to write in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace are ye saved. And it follows that if my salvation is by grace, and if it is God's work all the way through, by the very nature of the case, it cannot be made at any stage to depend upon human merit. Now, the Bible is crystal clear on that point. Not only in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but in, for example, Romans 11 and 6, and if by grace, Paul says, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, if you put works into the equation, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What we're saying is, and Paul is establishing the point here, you cannot have a salvation that is half of grace and half of works. You cannot begin to be saved by grace and then continue to be saved by your works. If you and I are dependent upon God, and we are, for the forgiveness of sin, for regeneration by the Holy Spirit of God, if we are shut up to His activity from the beginning, totally depending on Him, then we are shut up to God, dependent on Him all the way through. There is no blending of these two principles, God's grace and our works. In fact, you could compare that to oil and water. They don't mix. Oil will rise above the water, will sit on top. They do not blend, nor do works and grace. And in the Old Testament, there's a number of injunctions that we're not to have an ungodly mixture in, for example, Deuteronomy 22, the verse 9 to 11, Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with diverse seeds, different seeds, lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown and the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. You'll end up with contamination. Thou shalt not ply with an ox and an ass together. Thou shalt not wear a garment of diverse sorts as of woolen and linen together. And so the, the picture is being formed here. And the Old Testament answer to that is in Romans 4, verse 4 and 5, the Bible declares, To him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, 
but believeth on him, that's God who justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And so the book of God makes a principle absolutely clear. Either you and I, as we come to Christ, need to come pleading absolute bankruptcy, that all of my righteousnesses, the things that I think in myself are pretty good things by themselves, but in God's eyes, measured against His perfection, they're just filthy rags. They wouldn't even pay the slightest fraction of a single penny of what I owe to God. I must come and accept God's redemption as His free, unmerited gift, acknowledging I'm nothing but a sinner without even an infinitesimal atom of righteousness to come in a plate and offer it to God. I must come that way without any righteousness, without any good works, without thinking I'm earning something here. I must come pleading for His forgiveness, start to finish. So it must be received by grace, or it's not received at all. When you begin to explore and dig below the surface of all of those false religions around about you, the kind of people that knock at your door and others that you never see really from week to week or year to year, but JWs, you'll see them, Russellism. You'll see maybe some of the Christian scientists on a rare occasion. You'll come across Mormons as well, more regularly. Modernism in all of its forms. All of these, whatever ism you're looking at, Clump them all together. It's not unfair to do it. You'll find it's all about a religion of do. A religion of do. This base heresy that teaches it's possible for a poor, bankrupt sinner to pay God what he owes. That is an empty hope. That is a fatal delusion. A proud path. And that proud path snakes its way around many obstacles, but it always inevitably ends up in hell. Every soul is so helplessly, utterly, everlastingly bankrupt that he's doomed and he's damned already unless God's grace intervenes. There is no other way. Dr. T.T. Shields from Toronto told a story about a friend of his, and he met him in England in 1918, so we're coming towards the end of the war. The friend said to him, I'm coming to England again next year, and I'm going to bring my wife with me, and what's more, it'll not cost me anything. Oh, that's interesting, Dr. T.T. Shields replied. How are you going to manage that? A trip all the way over here to England, and you're going to do it for free. He says, I'm buying up German marks, and by next year, they'll be at par. I'm getting them cheap now, and I expect to make sufficient profit to pay for a trip to Europe next year. That man didn't get to Europe the next year for the simple reason by that stage the German mark was not worth anything. Mr. Shields himself was in an exchange office in London around that time when a man with a foreign accent came in and he inquired, now what could I get for my German marks? And the man behind the desk said, they're supposed to be worth so much, and he named a figure. If you can find anybody in London to buy them, and I doubt that very much. Just a few days, less than two weeks after the armistice, Dr. Shields was in Brussels. 
He went into a store in Brussels to buy something. The only money he had in his pocket was French, a 50-franc note, and he offered it in exchange for what he wanted, and the shopkeeper opened a drawer, began to count out a lot of paper. The preacher said, what kind of money is that? And he was told, this is the German money that was used during our occupation. When Dr. Shields found out that was all he had, he asked, can I have my 50-franc note back, please? For he knew that German money had lost its value in the markets of the world. Do you realize what your works of righteousness are worth? They're like that German money. They're worth nothing. You're a bankrupt before God. Your good works can't buy a thing in the storehouse of heaven. The only hope for any of us is to receive salvation by grace. And in Romans 5, in verse 15, and in the verse 17, Paul is laboring that point, and he talks about the gift of righteousness, which is by one man, Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace. We are saved by God's gift of righteousness to us. That's to say, there is no righteousness of our own. It's all German money post-World War I, and therefore we must present the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as a substitute for our own just as somebody might give you a uniform to put on when you're visiting around some of the hospital wards today. So here's the message. You have nothing to do but to receive God's salvation as a gift. Salvation is by grace through the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is why in Romans 6 and 23, here's how it's put, the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, the essence of eternal life. Then secondly, the explanation of eternal life. The explanation of eternal life. What does it mean to be saved? Perhaps a little boy in the meeting could tell me. He might say, I know, preacher, what it is. It's to have your sins forgiven. And that's true. Our sins are committed, they're recorded in God's book. He knows every one of them. That record is held there until God purges it and forgives us. But that's objective, something quite apart from ourselves. That's something God does for us. He forgives our sin. Who can forgive sins? Jesus said, but God only. No man is capable of doing it. Well, somebody else might say, to be saved is to be delivered from hell and to escape the punishment of sin. It's another way of saying the same thing, that salvation is the forgiveness of sins, and that, of course, is also true. Our punishment that we deserved for our many sins was taken and laid on Jesus Christ. He's our sin-bearer. He's our substitute. He dies that we might live. He suffers the just for us, the unjust, to bring us to God. Again, isn't that something that's being done for us? Not something we are doing by ourselves. That's the ground of salvation. And that is the only aspect of salvation that you, as a poor, guilty sinner, should be interested in. Not how many works have I done. Not how charitable am I. Not how do I look in the neighborhood around me. 
but what does it mean I need God's grace to save me? And their text tonight in Romans 6 and 23 says, the gift of God is not only the forgiveness of sins, though it is that, it is not only an assurance that we will never end up in hell, though it means that, it is not only an assurance, but rather you will go to heaven, although we also have that by grace. It is something more. The gift of God is eternal life. Now, that's not anything negative. That's something stupendously positive. The most positive thing in God's universe. Our Lord sets it before us as that. Remember his words to the woman at Sychar's well. In John 4, the verse 13 and 14, Jesus said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Of course, we're very familiar with the words that we have in John 7, 37 and 38. Jesus appeals to a vast audience. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has saith, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And it's all so wonderfully positive. If we were in marketing, and sometimes we're pretty disastrous at it. But we have a really good product to advertise. We have real reason to rejoice about it. Service with a smile is surely in order here. I mean, look at the tobacco companies, and look at the breweries, and look at the drug pushers of our day, and they're coming along with their hell-inducing products, and they have the most glorious faces stretched across the, the big smiles on all of the faces of their models and people employed to advertise all of this material. Well, why should we not, with the most positive message a man or woman can ever hear, why should we not send out this tremendous news of salvation as the best possible news that you will ever hear in your lifetime. We can sing. And we can sing with a frown. Oh, the children of the Lord have a right to shout and sing, for our, the way is growing bright. Our souls are on the wing. We are going by and by to the palace of a king. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Salvation is a new life. Not only something God does for you, but something He does in you. Paul again is drilling down to the very core of this thought in Ephesians 2 and verse 1 when he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Here's what he's done. He has made you alive. And away back in the day when you were converted, how did you view the Bible? You thanked God for a new interest in the Bible. You testified for years. It had been a very dry book. I would rather have read any book other than the Bible. But now I'd rather read the Bible than any other book. It's the most interesting, living, transforming book in the world to me. 
what made the difference. God made you alive spiritually. He implanted within you a love for the truth. Something had been done in you as well as for you and by your changed attitude towards Christ and changed attitude towards the Word and changed attitude towards everything spiritual and eternal, you knew there has been a difference worked within you. That change is described here in our text as new life. The gift of God is eternal life. What sort of life? Well, our text is telling us here it's eternal life. What does that mean? A life that never ends? It means that. It means very much more than that. It means not only a life that is eternal in terms of its duration, it keeps on going and going and going and never ends, but it is a life that is eternal in its quality. Eternal, eternal nature of this life that God has given. I want you to think of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus for a moment or two. In Ephesians 7, the verse, in Hebrews 7, the verse 16, we're told that he was made a priest, not after the power or authority of some carnal man-made commandment, but after the power, and here's a big word coming here, after the power of an endless life. Well, there's nothing big about that. Well, the word endless means indissoluble, indissoluble life. You know what it is when something is soluble? I need to be careful here because we have some doctors in chemistry in the meeting, and that's always going to mean you're on eggshells whenever you mention anything to do with chemicals. But there are certain metals, when they are reacting with certain chemicals, may be dissolved. There are certain things that can be dissolved by fire. We have dissolving tablets. We have dissolving sugar. We've got these wonderful detergents that dissolve the most stubborn of stains. But here is something, and it cannot be dissolved by anything. Nothing in heaven above. Nothing here on earth beneath. Nothing in hell either that can dissolve or destroy this life that is in Jesus Christ. It is indissoluble. It is eternal in its quality. Let me illustrate that. We have often thought of our Lord Jesus Christ as that babe in the manger at Bethlehem. A wonderful story. We'll be thinking more about it, no doubt, in coming weeks. But let me bring you back from the first chapter in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and whatnot and get you right back to the first chapter in Genesis in the beginning. God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, darkness upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And we read on, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so. Just as He said, so it happened. Everything was created by the power of the Word of God. All of this world, with all of its latent forces, how wonderful, majestic they are, He did it all the planets, all the galaxies as well. But here is a great mystery, that the God who made everything, determined to save, to redeem His people out of this rebellious world with all of its wickedness, with all of its tremendous powers, and how did He do it? Well, initially, He put a little babe in a manger in Bethlehem. 
only a little helpless babe. Now, had you and I been brought into God's council chamber, and he ruled out the plan, and he put the drafts up on the drawing board, and he said, here's what I propose to do. This is the way I'm going to do it. You would have been stepping back and scratching your head and thinking inwardly if you didn't express it. This is absurd. A world could never be redeemed in this way. But the wonderful story says he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. When? In the days of Herod the king, Matthew 2 and the verse 1. And when Herod the king heard about the birth of this babe, he said, I'll kill him. He's my target number one. And he gave authority to his officers, go and search out and find all the babies born in Bethlehem in recent times so that he could destroy his number one target, that little child who was born king of the Jews. But did he do it? No, he didn't. The angel of the Lord came in and heard it missed his target. And some time has passed. And the angel of the Lord comes again to Joseph and now says, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. Why? Why is it safe to do it now when it wasn't before? They had to flee out of it. Why are they going back in now? For they are dead which sought the young child's life. Matthew 2 and verse 20. They could not kill him because his was an indissoluble life. Then when he grew up to manhood, and he's preaching in that first public appearance in Nazareth in the synagogue, and he's opening a sermon uh, there before the people, and he goes into the book of Isaiah as the text for his sermon, and they decide, we don't like what we're hearing. And they grabbed him and took him to the brow of a hill, and they would have thrown him down headlong to his destruction, but... We have that word but inserted again in the Bible text. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. Luke 4 into verse 30. Hell had reached out its hand again to throttle that life. But there was no power in hell to destroy the life that was indissoluble. We have some of the Pharisees who came to him later. They said, get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. Luke 13, 31. And Jesus turned and he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures. Today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Luke 13, 31 to 33. He said in effect, Listen to me. I have chosen where to die. I have chosen when I will die. I have determined how I will die. I am the good shepherd. I've come on a mission, and my mission is this. The good shepherd will give his life for the sheep. And then he underlines all of that by saying in John 10 and verse 18, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. And you can argue all you want about what happened at the cross. Were there not people who tried him? 
who accused him, who bundled him off, who crucified him, who nailed him to the tree. You'll get the explanation for that in Acts 2 and 24. They only did what God had determined before would be done, and he dies, he goes into the grave, and he ascends out of the grave three days later. Why? Because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Why? Because his was an indissoluble life. And you know what? Just as Christ's life could not be ended by the power or devisings of man, so it is as impossible for any power in earth or hell to terminate the salvation that Jesus Christ gives to a believing soul. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We've thought of the essence of eternal life, the explanation of eternal life, the examples of eternal life, the figures of speech or the word pictures that are painted in the Word of God that describe salvation. They emphasize this is God's work by grace. It is eternal. It's a new birth. 1 Peter 1 and 2, we're begotten by the Word of God which liveth and abideth forever. We're said to be members of Christ's body. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 14, in John 19 and 36, and there's exactly the same kind of life in my fingers today as there is in my head. Every member of the body moves through the authority of the head. And every true believer, a member of the body of Christ, are sharing his life and are being directed by him. That body they led in the grave was wounded, but it was not dismembered. That body that was raised again was a whole body, perfect, glorified body. Every member raised with the head, and not one will ever be lost. We're also said to be the bride of Christ. There has to be a marriage day. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, Revelation 19 and 7, Matthew 25 and the verse 6. The cry goes out, the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife hath made herself ready. Why is she ready? In her totality. No part missing. Because the marriage day has come. Our Lord Jesus will never breach his promise. There will be a happy marriage day. And the bride will be there. The final thought tonight. The essence of eternal life, the explanation of eternal life, we have bounced through quickly the examples of eternal life, the expressions, the expressions of eternal life. Words familiar to you, over in John 3, the verse 14 and 15, our Lord is, and he always looked for a window in his message, an illustration to make his point, drive home the message he's giving to men as Moses, he said. So he goes into the Old Testament, he pulls out an illustration. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why would he be lifted up? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. That most familiar text coming straight after it. John 3 and 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yet again, in John 5 and 24, 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, believeth in him that sent me, hath everlasting life. Another layer in John 10, 27, 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them what? Here's his gift. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them beam is greater than all. Heard a story about a man down in the south of the United States. And he regularly shouted out in the middle of the meeting, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Praise God because he had eternal salvation. Somebody asked him, Brother, how are you so sure? And he quoted the verses I've just cited in John 10, 27 through 29. And he said, you see, it's like this. It says, I am in the hands of Jesus. And Jesus is in the hands of the Father. First of all, he says, I am held in his hand. And then we are both held in the Father's hand. And before the devil could get at me, he would have to bust the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with all the powers of deity, are engaged to save forever that soul that puts his or her trust in Jesus. The hymn writer said, to me it's wonderful. To me, it's wonderful. Wonderful it is to me. And we could keep quoting Bible passages until the time the cows would come home, or until the time when you've run out of time to get your supper upstairs. We could keep quoting them, but I've said enough here to put in a foundation for our faith. If this is the kind of salvation our Lord Jesus gives, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, then let us receive it. What are we waiting for? There's nothing better than this. There's no other way into God's heaven other than this, to receive the gift. Say, for example, you stay in a hotel, and you'll maybe be told at the reception, you know, there's a safe in your room. You can put your valuables in there, your jewelry or your money. You can deposit them there. But they're not going to be responsible for any valuables not committed to their charge. Jesus Christ will not be responsible for your soul unless it is committed to His charge. But if you hand over and those empty hands of faith, your soul to Him, your most valuable possession to Him, He will take charge of it forever. He'll give you His receipt, the promise of God in His book that He cannot lie, and He'll tell you there is no power in the universe that can pluck you out of His hand. Trust Him today. Trust Him, and you'll be as sure of salvation as though you were already inside the gates of heaven. His honor is engaged to save the meanest of his sheep. All that his heavenly Father gave, his hands securely keep. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ or in Jesus Christ. Our Lord, may God give you the grace to accept this salvation freely.
from his hand. 